This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers is your one-stop shop to level up your skills. These episodes are a great way to get a preview of the fascinating subjects and knowledge from my guests, but if you want to build a deeper understanding and practical skills that will serve you on your regenerative journey, then you should check out their titles like Coppice Agroforestry, The Book of Nature Connection, Practical No-Till Farming, Wild Plant Culture, and so many more. They've got audio, digital, and hard copy books so that you can choose your favorite format. Find it all now at NewSociety.com. Hello and good morning, everybody. Welcome back. I am taking a moment to sneak away from the group here at the, the Climate Farmers Retreat just outside of Lisbon. We're having a wonderful time kind of gathering ideas, bringing people together. Since we all work remotely, it's, it's great to get to see everyone together. <laughs> at the moment, uh, my colleague and roommate Jonas is in the shower, so you might hear some stuff in the background. But this was a little moment that I was able to uh, take for myself and record this introduction. So anyway, I have got a real treat for you all today. After almost three years, I've got Shane Simonson back on the show. And for those of you who are not familiar with Shane, I'll give you a quick intro and then point you to the links to the two previous shows that I recorded with him because they're super worthwhile. Now, Shane is a biologist who has a fascinating project on 40 acres in Queensland, Australia, centered around the concept of zero input farming, which also happens to be the name of the popular blog that he's written about it which is one of the most original approaches to large-scale food production that I've come across in a long time. And it asks the simple question of how might we still be able to produce enough food for ourselves and our communities if we no longer had access to all of the inputs and fossil fuels of our modern times. So despite sounding like a post-apocalyptic exercise in primitive living, Shane's writing is surprisingly optimistic and pragmatic. In the small excerpt from his first post from September back in 2019, he wrote, In the resource-constrained future ahead of us, these input-dependent approaches to growing food will become impractical or impossible. Instead, new systems that rely on locally adapted crops and livestock, integrated into systems that are truly compatible with the local geology and climate, will be required. I've taken on the challenge of developing these systems in our particular region in the remaining two decades of vigor that I have left in me. This blog is an account of this journey, and hopefully I can inspire some of you to follow in my direction and develop your own locally adapted systems. And since hearing about this concept, I've been super inspired to try it for myself. But really, that's just an excerpt from the original interview that I did with Shane from before the pandemic. Today, we're going to be speaking with him about how his zero input strategy helped during an Australian response to the pandemic. We go over what he learned and observed from the resilience and the weak points on his farm, as well as how it has caused adaptations for his next steps ahead. And on top of all of the farm and ecology talk, we're also going to dig into the new series of a unique brand of science fiction novels that he's just about to publish. Now, though it's much better to hear him explain it, I can say that I've never yet found literature on a possible future for a reintegrated future human society whose world is built around biological technology in contrast to the industrial and mechanical technology that dominates our modern world as well as every other sci-fi premise that I've so far come in contact with. Now that alone has my imagination and curiosity peaked, and I hope that it's something that we can explore a lot more in future sessions. 
But rather than draw out my take on this, I'll hand things over now to Shane Simonson. Shane, welcome back. Like you were saying just a second ago, it has been three years since you and I had a conversation on the air like this, even though we've been in touch on the Discord server quite regularly. And you refreshed my memory. This was like just around the time that COVID was starting to hit was when we did our last interview. How have you been since then? A lot has happened. It it has been a bit of a roller coaster ride, but uh, I'll I'll chalk it up to a stress test for my zero input system. And, That's right. Um, yeah, I've I've got lots of interesting little bits and pieces that I can that I can share with you and fill you in on all that's been happening here. Well, let's dive into that first then, because when we had our previous two discussions, you introduced the idea of zero input agriculture and how you were going about it, some of the intentions and experiments that you had run. On the second conversation, you gave us some updates on how those were going. And I guess we're going to do a, a similar follow-up right now. <laughs> Tell me what has kind of transformed since that stress test. Okay. Well, um, so around the time the, the pandemic and the response started uh, building up steam in 2020, um, one of the first things that I did was uh, we, we took a, a relatively... Well, for us, a relatively large area, about a third of an acre, and I mass planted out my hybrid cannas um, away from the house on soil that had absolutely no amendments. Um, it got mowed and it got planted, and then I walked away. And it was um, like the the biggest um, like thrown to the wolves kind of test for that genetics because I wanted to see what could actually um, fight its way through the competition and deal with the soil and the climate that we had. And I planted the um, the original Queensland arrowroot clone in parallel, and it was night and day the performance. The um, the hybrids grew to their usual like two meters tall, um, without hesitating, while the um, the original uh, like weakened clone um, struggled to establish at all. So, wow. um, and uh, it, I also got to observe um, different rates of um, pest pressure. So we've got a lot of rats. In this area, um, at least I would presume it's rats that chew some of the tubers. Mm -hmm. So um, after leaving them to their own devices for a couple of years, I've gone out and I've picked out the specimens that have the best looking tubers and the least evidence of rat pressure. Because the last thing you'd want to do is to plant an acre of this and then have the whole thing disappear to rats. Okay. And so quickly refresh for those who, who haven't heard about the, the canna experiment yes. in the past i know these around here as mostly ornamental plants they have a beautiful flower and until i spoke with you i didn't realize that the tuber was edible and since then i've, yes. I've collected seeds but maybe give us a little more information on that yes yeah so the backstory of this um uh, this project so i'm particularly focused on finding reliable staple crops for my local conditions and i've tried every grain under the sun and they the very few that I've managed to get past our local burst pressure, like a, a parrot-resistant strain of maize, um, they have the problem that you need to have reasonable moisture at the time of sowing, which is like a one to two month window. Um, and then you need to have relatively dry weather during harvest. And because we're in a really uh, variable climate here in Australia, we only get those conditions about 50% of the time. So um, that's too often to go to all of the effort of planting a crop only to have it fail. Um, either you have a drought when you go to plant it and they don't germinate, um, or you have uh, more, more often you have pouring rain 
when the crop should be ripening and it just ends up rotting on the plant um, no matter what you do with your timing. So um, the canna is a, uh, a starch producing tuber. Um, probably the closest functional equivalent would be cassava, um, but it doesn't grow particularly well here. Uh, the rat and bandicoot pressure on it uh, just wipes it out most years. Uh, whereas canna holds up to those uh, pests and uh, it has the advantage that it's a it's probably the best crop for extracting pure starch out of the tubers. It's not that great to eat as a as a whole tuber. The um the starch levels in it are fairly low, but the starch grains are really big, which makes them very easy to purify. And once you have that purified starch, it stores for basically forever if you can keep it dry, um, which I think makes it the perfect crop for supporting a society in a really variable climate because we'll often have like three-year droughts where the canners, once they're established, will survive, but you won't necessarily get an, an optimum crop out of them. Um, and at the other extremes, when you get the really wet years, the canners can go underwater for like weeks and they don't care. You can you can set them on fire. Yeah, you can you can set them on fire during the droughts and the tubers are deep enough that they, they just bounce back. And you can set them underwater as well during the floods. They don't care. And, and that's why they're just such an amazing crop to work with. That's fantastic. I really look forward to getting those trialed around here. But you have, is it fairly uh, clay heavy soils? Is that what you're working yes, with? Yes, we, we have a really strange cracking clay that's relatively mm. low in calcium and high in magnesium. Okay. Um, so it has a tendency to compact, I would imagine. Uh, well, it, it's strange. Um, so we have giant earthworms here that grow like a meter and a half long. Wow. And I think the reason why we've got them is because this clay is stable enough in its structure that they can form their burrows without them collapsing every every five minutes. Oh, interesting. Um, so you'd never find them in a sandy soil. Um, so when you dig up our soil during dry periods, it, it lifts up like blocks of concrete. Like you, you, you look how unworkable it is. And you like despair, like, oh my God, this is like such a horrible soil to work with. But then if you actually have a, a section that's had plants growing on it and you look really closely at it, it's riddled with all of these tiny little tunnels. So it's almost like, um, it's like that aerated concrete. Yep. I, don't, I don't know if you've ever seen that for building materials. Yeah. So um, if you break your back trying to dig this soil, you destroy all of that structure and it collapses down and it, then it really compacts. So I've learned um, to uh, do no dig techniques. And the can is really good because the tubers grow along the surface of the ground. So you don't even have to dig it to harvest. Okay. Well, it makes me think that I'll probably not have very similar results to yours in my extremely sandy soil. Uh, but you gave me some good recommendations back on the forums before about what to maybe try in these sandy conditions. Um, do you want to go over some of the recommendations that you had shot me before? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, soil type and which crops do well in it, particularly for tuber crops, is really, really a, a big factor. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, for your conditions, I would definitely try tufa, um, uh, the tiger nut. Yeah. And that has a history of uh, use in uh, Spain for making horchata, That's I think right. it is, the, the kind of uh, milky drink. Um, and sweet potatoes could be worth trying as well, too. Um, I've picked up a seed-grown strain of sweet potatoes, which is uh, quite an unusual thing, but um, again, an example of a crop that's been clonally propagated for thousands of years, and it's accumulated viruses and mutations and um, kind of... Uh, 
painted itself into a genetic dead end. So yeah. um, there's there's a few people out there doing the the tricky work of getting them fertile again, which means it's much easier for other people to breed varieties that suit their local conditions. Yeah. And I'm fortunate in that there are seed preservation societies around here and those who have worked to recover heirloom genetics. In fact, what you're talking about with the, the sweet potatoes is there is a local variety around here, which is massive. I actually knew mm -hmm. a guy who was cultivating it and it's more like a regular potato or, or a large yam. And it's not nearly as sweet. It doesn't have that dark color, but seems mm -hmm. to grow really well in the conditions that we have around here. So that's one of the ones I'm mm -hmm. going to trial out this year probably as well. Brilliant. Yeah. And I think I'm sure you've done the same, starting to make connections with people in your community who are similarly passionate about these types of efforts and swapping seeds and genetic material in between so that you can trial a lot more than you'd probably likely find in most of your garden stores or sources of, of seeds online or in catalogs, right? Well, again, in Europe, uh, you've probably got a much richer heritage there to tap into, though I did have a win recently. Um, I got in contact with uh, an old lady up the road who was born here and her parents were born here and she's been growing her own little vegetable garden with varieties that she's inherited from her relatives that go back to the settler days, basically. And um, from her, I managed to get, I think it was six different strains of lima beans. And we only really have two very closely related strains in common circulation here. So she managed to massively increase the diversity that I have of, of one of the few reliable um, staple legume crops for these conditions. And she's, oh, I don't know, she'll probably surprise us uh, given her, her indomitable spirit about how long she lasts, but it was a limited opportunity for her to pass those seeds onto someone else who could then pass them on to someone else. Like I've been sharing them far and wide. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of scary to think that you could miss out by a few years and miss these opportunities. Um, that is something interesting that's worth talking about. Um, so when I started this project, I kind of looked at the state of the world and thought we're living through a kind of golden age in terms of ease of getting seeds from all over the world. So because of the internet, you can search and find people growing things in all sorts of strange places, send them an email, transfer the money, the postal system worked like a dream. All of that is already starting to show cracks. Yeah. So during the pandemic, the postal system spluttered pretty heavily and the price has gone through the roof. But more interestingly, and this is a, a very recent development for me, in Australia, previously, I could export seeds to other locations, and then they were subject to local um, rules and regulations. And often in Europe and North America, they're so connected to the rest of the world that they don't really care, compared to Australia, which is much more strict about things coming in, which is, you know, fair enough. I can understand where they're coming from. Um, but just very recently, the rules have changed with Australia, and I am no longer able to export seed overseas. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I need to have phyto phytosanitary certificates. Which for small organizations, the, the costs and the overheads is manageable, but for amateur, you know, single people, it's basically shut me down in that regard, which is yeah. kind of sad, but it was kind of, you know, most of history, people haven't had that tool at their disposal. So yeah, it's just disappeared for me, which is sad because I, I, I loved sharing my material around the world. So I'll keep looking and see if I can find a, a way around, like to tick all the boxes, um, but yeah, it's, it's just kind of throwing a wrench in the works. 
Yeah, and so many other things have changed since the pandemic, and it's caused a response uh, kind of as, as an adequate reply to what is no longer something that can be taken for granted. You mentioned the, the trade of seeds. Other people have mentioned, you know, access to certain ingredients. And uh, there have been some interesting responses. It's, it's been really interesting to see on, let's say, social media, as everybody's been publishing their workarounds and their responses to, to new conditions. You mentioned having planted out that living larder of the kanas and seeing how those hybrids worked out for you. Luckily, you had success. I did something similar with squash back when I had access to a different garden back then. Planted them all way too close and... The most work that I ended up doing during that was just training the vines to not overgrow each other, um, but still got a massive harvest of squash out of that. That was really useful. And I think we've also seen a reappreciation for people who perhaps weren't even tapped into the regen ag or organic movements before, but when they realized that their local growers were the only people who had reliable sources of food, Mm. There was a huge boom in in local uh, consumption and interest once again in in local food movements. Did you see the same thing in Australia? Yes, yeah, I, I was very lucky to get the timing right. So we, like in many places, had panic buying of vegetable seeds. Yeah, um, it was like toilet paper and lettuce seeds. For some reason, people thought that was going to solve their problems. Um, so the local stores sold out, and because of the um, difficulties with international shipping, they couldn't get more of the usual, you know, glossy greenhouse variety packets that come in from mostly in Holland. Uh, I've since learned that pretty much all of the the local um, vegetable seed in the world uh, for home gardeners is actually greenhouse varieties from Holland, which um, they have the, like the most ideal conditions imaginable and carefully controlled. Um, so it's not surprising that people with home gardens often struggle with that material. Um, anyway, so I managed to jump on that opportunity and I, I recently selected the varieties that did well for me and I bulked up the amount of um, seed. So I packaged it all up and I made not a vast amount of money, but it was enough to think that it had been worth all of the struggle up to that point going through the early variety trials and that I might have a, a sustainable um, source of income to kind of keep the whole project going in the future. But um, unfortunately, once the glossy packets turned back up on the shelves, nobody wanted to know about me anymore. So really? oh, yeah, I got so a little bit bitter over that. Like it was a moment to kind of pause and reflect about what I was doing mm. and what my original aims were. Um, so on the vegetable side, I looked at the varieties that I had and actually massively scaled down. So I only am intending to grow about a dozen varieties going forward, whereas I think I had like 30 or 40 before. It was just too much to constantly juggle it all for the return I was getting. And even something like things, excuse me, some things like carrots, I was starting to breed my own varieties and like in the subtropics on an incredibly hard clay soil, it, it was amazing what I was getting out of them, but it still wasn't enough to justify the amount of effort that was involved compared to other crops that were just so much easier. Sure. Um, but and yeah, I made sure to spread the 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 um the selected uh, and mixed up varieties to other growers and breeders that I knew. So it wasn't a complete waste of time. Sure. And so what were some of the other things that you trialed around that time and started to find either success or, or got some really important learnings out of? Uh, well, in terms of the vegetables, it was just scaling it back because um, yeah. 
they're they're very attention grabbing. Um, like Canna is a very interesting crop, but you know when everything goes right, you get a, a pile of dry starch, which isn't very exciting compared to a yeah. tomato. Yeah. So um, it, it's very easy to to have all your attention and time get dragged into the vegetables. And I think vegetables are lovely, and I think they're important. But um, if things continue to get more difficult, they're not going to be enough to keep people going. The staple crops need urgent attention um to to be developed under local um systems that can be reliable that you could actually put you know the full weight of a a local community on if it came to that and i'm not expecting you know doom and gloom disaster tomorrow um but in a generation or three's time um well i mean we've seen how much the world has changed just in three years so in three generations um who knows where we're going to end up and just having those uh, genetic resources and the skills that accompany them waiting in the background for if and when they're needed. Um, that's my priority. Um, that That's what I would like to be able to provide for my community when it's needed. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So yeah, particularly with the canna, that's been um, a major focus. Um, I also um, took away energy that was going into other things that I realized were a waste of time. So I had greenhouses full of like rare cacti and succulents. I sold them all off. It's like, I I was losing interest in them anyway. And I've got, I've got 40 acres to play with. Like, why am I in a greenhouse? Like fiddling with these things that want to die. And likewise, there were flower gardens all around the house that were beautiful, had all these rare perennials in them, but I was just spending so much time weeding it every time we got like a a wet spell and things got out of control. So that all got flattened as well. Um, And yeah, I I reduced the vegetables right back. Um, The vegetable garden actually got abandoned at one point. I'm just like, no, I just need a break from it. I'm like, I I could tell I was on the edge of burnout after five years of nonstop, you know, dedicated farming. I just needed a a change in focus. And the funny thing is um, again, a little, um, uh, indicator of how well zero input agriculture work. I kept harvesting for like nine months. I could go out and like fill a basket and it steadily dwindled, but it was still nice having a flow of some fresh ingredients to add to, um, to, to meals. And yeah, that, that was with absolutely not, no investment in the space. What were the um, things you were mostly harvesting for those nine months? What was continuing uh, to produce? Well, one thing that was really interesting. So I picked up a strain of hyacinth bean, sometimes called lab lab bean. Mm-hmm. Um, so the common variety that's grown around here is a, a pasture legume that you like plant in cow paddocks. Sure. Um, but I managed to pick up a Southeast Asian vegetable strain. Um, it was actually six different ones that I just mixed them all together because I couldn't be bothered labeling them. And I'd grown them and they'd fruited and I'd read about how you could you know, eat the young pods and you could even eat the young leaves. And because I'd had so many other vegetables on the go that I was more familiar with, I never quite got around to putting it in dishes. Right. You know what it's like with some vegetables, like there's a trick to how you use it or an acquired taste or, and as you know, when you're in the middle of cooking dinner, you're like, do I risk ruining dinner tonight and having everyone (laughs) complain about it for the next week? Um, and, you, you know, if you've got other things, you usually put it off. But finally, I gave those lab lab beans a go. They're amazing. And here's the thing, like you plant them in the spring. They grow crazy, like mad all through the summer. Um, I'd actually planted them as a um, like just a green manure crop to like add to the weeds. But they just mm. kept growing all over the top of everything. 
Um, I started eating the leaves through the summer and they taste like beans. They're, they're lovely. Nice. And then um, in autumn, the young immature pods started forming and they kept potting, like, I think for about three or four months through the winter. And by contrast, previously I would grow snow peas because, like, you know, everyone knows snow peas and they're, they're easy and familiar. Um, snow peas are only a winter crop here and you get maybe two or three weeks when the plants do a reasonable harvest and then they kind of burn out and get covered in mildew. Mm. Um, saving seeds of them is a real pain because the parrots come in and eat them like every every other thing yeah. that I try and grow. Yeah. Um, and for years I'd had these lab lab beans growing in parallel and I just hadn't gotten over that uh, cultural barrier of actually giving them a proper try in cooking. And they'd been the superior crop all along. And I'd, I don't grow snow peas anymore. Um, when the parrots ate the last batch of seed that I was trying to save, I'm just like, okay, parrots, <laughs> that's your final judgment. So I hope you enjoyed it. And there's one of the things that I love about the experiments and the learnings that you publish about regularly is that, you know, you can have all kinds of scientific knowledge on farming and seed breeding and all of these other things, but so much of it is cultural perception and preconceived notions that many of us just haven't ever challenged or worked to to look at other options uh for for analyzing the things that grow around us and you seem to regularly audit your own thought pattern to figure out okay what is my environment actually trying to tell me about what will grow well here what will overcome the pest and uh, disease pressures that we have and the unique weather patterns it's mm. not going to be those greenhouse grown Netherlands <laughs> glossy seed packets. <laughs> you have to look a little deeper and go into things that maybe there isn't any written literature on or nobody around you is growing. And that mm. takes a lot of work. Many of us don't realize the mental barriers that we have against it until we actually bump up against, you know, big failures or, or actively look for opportunities to expand beyond what we've learned so far. That's something you do really well. Or, or just plain desperation when like everything else runs out. That, you, you've that comes no in too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, a related thing. Um, I previously grew oregano and in the humid subtropics, it does fine through the winter, but when you get a really wet summer, it usually like rots out and you've mm -hmm. got to start it again from little pieces you've rescued. Mm -hmm. So it's this constant like struggle to keep it going long-term. And by contrast, there's a plant called Cuban oregano. It's a plectranthus. I don't know. Is that the really broad-leafed one? Yeah, it's really it's a semi-succulent. Yeah. Um, but it kind of grows along the surface. So it, even during the wet spells, it just sails along. And if it does it's really beautiful, rot, doesn't that the one have like purple parts of the plant as well? I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. One. And yeah. I've grown it for years, and it was another one of these things where I'm like, well, I've got the oregano that I know how it tastes. Right. Um, and just in the last six months, I've started eating the Cuban oregano and I've kicked myself for not trying it sooner. <laughs> it, is, it isn't a universal um, truth, though. There's plenty of vegetables that I've grown, um, particularly like tropical leaf vegetables, where I, I just think they're vile. <laughs> <laughs> but again, like you look at all the diverse cuisines around the world and there's plenty of cultures that you could drop yourself into and you would struggle to enjoy the food. But everyone who grew up with it, they think it's wonderful yeah, so yeah. Part, do part of it is just yeah it's how flexible your palate is um particularly as you age i think we get a bit more set in our ways fair enough yeah i think i was really lucky in that i traveled a lot as a kid and then when i was in my early adult years that i have a broad palate and i've tried a lot of things and in, in in guatemala we actually grew that cuban oregano and mm. that's when i started to get used to it as well as a number of other things that were like 
considered medicinal perhaps in, in Western mm -hmm. culture, but are pretty common in the cuisine in, in other places. And yeah, I think part of, part of its cultural con uh, contagion. Mm -hmm. Like if you have one person who has eaten an ingredient and kind of knows, you know, How if you just gave a it. potato to someone who'd never seen a potato before and sent them into the kitchen, the odds of them creating something nice from it first time sure. yeah. would be pretty low. But if nope. someone could like show it. them the finished dish that they'd practiced cooking for years and convince them that it was worth the effort of learning how to do it, yeah. then it can actually transmit from person to person. And yeah, in somewhere as isolated as Australia, both geographically and culturally, um, just getting that ball rolling sometimes takes a little bit of um, persistence and experimentation. But yeah, once you know what you're doing, it's easier to show other people. Yeah. Um, but that said, the the last big maize crop that I harvested a few years ago when the conditions all lined up, most of it is still sitting in buckets because I know how to nixtamalize it. Yeah. Um, I've, I've practiced that enough to, I, I pretty much know what I'm doing. But from that point on, um, like other than just putting in stews like an atoll, like I've, I've admitted to myself, I'm never going to learn to make a good tortilla. Like I've seen videos <laughs> of like a, a young woman in, in Guatemala working alongside um, an older woman and apparently it takes her like five years of doing it every day before you get really good at making a tortilla that people like. I was endlessly humbled by that too. And I had the women in the comedores in the market like try and teach me because I would go there after school to have mm -hmm. lunch every day. And, you know, they were nice. They would let me help and stuff. And I'd pay for all the ones that I screwed up. But man, <laughs> that's a unique, it's a unique skill. It always sticks. Mm. It always sticks. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm I'm gonna have to start the process of that with can of starch. Um, figure oh, yeah. out what you use it similarly. Um, I've used it in baking, and mm -hmm. it's fine. Um, but in terms, but that's like desserts. Like you, well, you probably shouldn't be eating like date slice every meal. Um, so yeah, turning it into a staple that complements with other ingredients. Mm. Um, the only example I've seen of that today is in Southeast Asia, where they grow it up in the mountains, where the soil's too thin for rice. They extract the starch and they turn it into um, cellophane noodles. And oh, I've seen little little videos of the process that they use, and it is so highly skilled. Like the <laughs> the the ingenuity, and like they've only had that ingredient for I don't know a, a century or maybe two, mm. um, and to adapt to it that quickly, I'm I'm just in awe. So right, um, I'm I'll probably learn how to make dumplings with it. Something pretty crude by comparison. <laughs> Are there any other references for cultures that use kana regularly as a as a staple crop? Well, even in Peru, um, all it's used for these days I've seen is it's cooked in giant stone pits once a year and then fermented into an alcoholic drink for like an, an annual celebration. That's oh, the only okay. reference I've seen to it being used in Peru to this day. That can be your doomsday booze. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so oh, we've talked about the, the plants a lot, but um, I, I really like the experiments and the insights that you've had with animals as well. Have mm -hmm. you tried any new experiments or come to some new conclusions with the animals? Well, the biggest development since we last spoke, um, previously I probably mentioned I was working on hybridizing European and Chinese geese 
to yep. develop a, a population from that. Yeah. So I managed to engineer the population to force them to cross because they, mm -hmm. they kind of kept to their own kind when I just mixed uh -huh. all of them together. So that was a lot of work, like separating the males and females and putting them in smaller groups when the breeding season came around. Mm. But I managed to get about 25 hybrid goslings from mm -hmm. that experiment. So they were no stronger than the original Chinese geese, which were always a bit fragile. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, if I get to a second hybrid generation, that's often when you get useful combinations of traits. So I got rid of all of my purebred geese and I just kept those hybrids and produced uh, an F2 generation. And they were the weakest, like they, <laughs> were, they were just no good at all. Like they were just uh, terrible. Um, that was around the time let's, we- Let's take a step back first and, and talk <laughs> yeah. about the motivations for trying to cross these two breeds. What were you trying to get? So the general principle is if you want to um, generate um, a hyper-variable population to do selection from, crossing uh, widely re uh, distantly related um, parent populations is usually the best first step. Um, but it doesn't always work. Like it's not a guarantee. Sure. Um, so, and, and this is a pattern that's all the way through the history of agriculture. And it seems to be like fundamental to biology. Usually a speciation event happens because of hybridization. So like chickens, for example, are originally a hybrid of three different species of jungle fowl. And from that original, like, mixed up population of hybrids, people managed to select out the first chickens that were useful for humans. Um, there was some hybridization in cows I've been reading about recently, too. Um, humans, we, we hybridized with Neanderthals and other things that we ran into when we first uh, burst out of Africa onto the world. Um, so, yeah, I was trying to reproduce that. And geese were actually domesticated twice from separate wild species, once in Europe and once in Asia. And where those populations of domesticates overlap in India, there are evidence of hybrid populations that were reported from um, like British colonial times in India. Mm. So I'm like, okay, well, I can get European geese. I can get Chinese geese. If I look carefully, they're not as common here in Australia. So if I can get them to hybridize, I might be able to create a new breed of geese that is suited to my purposes and conditions. And yeah, when I got to that second generation and they just fell behind and just, it's tricky because you have to give them a chance to perform, to, to see what they can actually do. But yeah, it got to the point where I could see, I, I didn't have a viable population left at that stage. So I, I sold them off to other people and had a break from geese. That was around the same time where I had to step back and, um, you know. Sure, avoid burnout. Yeah, yeah, I could see that there was a risk of burnout and it was an opportunity to step back and just take a break and focus on the goats because starting them again from scratch would be way more difficult. Mm. But, um, yeah, the, the goats have been doing really well. Um, I've got a new buck from a different population and he, he's lovely. Um, getting them through the floods was probably the biggest challenge. So um, I, I don't know if I told you about this. In... No, but for quick context. So you're talking about the floods from when, when, when was it again that you had record rainfall? So in, in 2021, that's when I abandoned the vegetable garden and it yeah. started raining that winter and it didn't let up for nearly a year. Yeah. Um, the And it was just mud everywhere. That clay that turns to concrete when it's dry, it just turns to sloppy, slippery mud when it's wet. Yeah. Um, and goats don't particularly like wet weather. It's it's a little bit challenging them having having them on the coast where it gets wet sometimes. Do they get so, respiratory yeah, just... problems? Is that 
Uh, they can get hoof problems if they're standing yeah, in, right, in damp yeah. ground for too long. So yeah, I was having all sorts of fun and games, uh, keeping them dry when they were resting. Um, uh, to give you an example about how extreme it got, um, during the summer of 2022, we got a meter of rain in three days. Oof. Yeah, it was just... That's intense. Absolutely astonishing. And yeah, I was basically just sitting inside most of the day working on my fiction, trying not to think about it and just yeah. dashing out a couple of times a day to make sure the goats are okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was a bit of a challenge, but we got through it. Um, but for people who don't understand what Australia is like, um, we go through about uh, cycles of about 10 years from extreme wet to extreme dry. Mm -hmm. And about six years ago, we had nine months with zero rain, uh, which the peak of that, the first day of spring, we hit 40 degrees Celsius. Um, all of the geese eggs cooked in the nests. We had ash raining from the sky from all of the fires in the district. And there was a plague of paralysis ticks crawling all over the earth. Like I, I was I was losing geese regularly to the ticks as well. Um, so yeah, that's a pretty, um, it, it's a bit more extreme than normal, uh, at the moment, but it's regular to go from, um, a, a few years of drought to a few years of floods yeah. every decade or so. Yeah. And it's probably one of the reasons why, um, traditional grain-based agriculture didn't evolve in Australia. Yeah. Um, cause it, it's just too unreliable to plant a grain crop. Um, half the time you'll get nothing and that's too, uh, lo it's too high a risk basically to invest all of that time in yeah yeah mm. and have your tree crops been surviving these extreme conditions they have done absolutely fine and this is one of the advantages of the zero input system like i only mass planted trees that already had shown that they they can handle our conditions right so the bunyas are all out there um steadily getting bigger some of them are sticking their heads up above the weeds and starting to take off um, I'm just about gearing up for growing? another mass planting. Uh, they take about 15 years to get to five meters tall, which is when they start fruiting. Got it. So rel they're not extremely slow, but yeah. they're not, they're, they're kind not, of in between. They're no eucalypts. <laughs> thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they're, they're doing okay. Um, I'm with all of the extra vegetation that's sprung up from that wet period. Um, I'm going to start taking the goats further around the property so um, they had a, oh, that's another interesting thing with the animals. So previously I had done regular managed intensive rotational grazing when I had cows years ago and I saw the benefits from it, but it's a lot of work and running electric tape all over the place. And when we transitioned to goats, I'm like, they're much more selective grazers. They're not hitting the land as hard. I'm in a humid environment where vegetation rots periodically when you get wet weather. Maybe I can get away with just doing two large paddocks and moving them back and forth. Mm -hmm. And that worked reasonably well to begin, but I could see that the quality of the vegetation was degrading over time steadily. Yeah. So I bit the bullet around the time the rain started up and I started moving the goats every three days. Like I, I rejiggered the whole space that they're in. And I think it took less than a year before I could see that the quality of the vegetation in the paddocks was rapidly increasing um fodder trees were starting to grow like they would get grazed when the goats went through for three days but the the frame of the plant was left intact yeah. so that cycle by cycle they're actually getting to grow bigger 
Um, the most interesting thing was, so my goats still get a supplementary mineral lick. It's the only um, input that they get from off the farm. Mm -hmm. And it's basically because the mineral cycles in our, our washed out, leached coastal soils are just broken. Mm -hmm. So this should have large trees on it, bringing minerals up from deeper in the soil. And they were all cut down um, when the town was founded. And we were left with these like bare paddocks that people could put cows on and... Um, because the minerals cycles are so broken, the cows actually can't survive without mineral licks to supplement. Whereas um, in a healthy environment, that shouldn't be necessary. Right. So I noticed my goats when I shifted to this regular rotation, the amount of mineral lick they were consuming dropped dramatically. Like they barely touch it anymore. So it tells me that something about the mineral cycle is working better than it was before. That's really cool to hear these indicators and these observations because it gives me insights into what else I can look for and talk with other producers that I work with regularly to mm. keep an eye on to see if things are improving you know because if you don't know what to observe it's really hard to tell whether your experiments are actually successful or whether you need to kind of change course yes. um, it's also quite a testament to the system of, of you know adaptive rotational grazing as well well, I am concerned in the long term about the dependence on electric fencing. Sure. So it, it works as advertised, but it has some structural vulnerabilities. And if you if you look at the work of Alan Savory, he's actually collaborated with African villages where they have like no resources. They can't afford, they don't have electricity to, <laughs> to run electric fences. Um, so the the system of um uh, holistic management doesn't really it, it isn't electric fencing it, it's bigger than that so yes. for example with my goats i've started taking them outside of the electric fences and seeing if i can herd them by hand i mean people have done this for thousands of years but there's no cultural history of it in australia mm. um, even in the colonial days when people relied on goats they used to just send them out of their like house yard to like go wherever they wanted and come back when they were finished at the end of the day no one was out there herding them um, helping them find the right locations and then rest them at other times. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to, you know, just take the first tiny baby steps of working with my goats, carrying a big bamboo stick around and um, teaching them how it, they're very smart animals. Like if you. Goats are super smart. You, yeah. Yeah. If you communicate with them in the right way, um, what your expectations are of them and you give them a reason to want to do what you want them to do then they're amazing. Um, they're amazing bit of farm machinery. Like they're, they're, we talk about like these smart tractors that are like connected to satellites <laughs> and can like turn around at the end of the row. They've got nothing on a goat, yeah. um, but you need to be there to tell the goat what you want from it. Yeah. Um, so for example, with my overgrown weedy vegetable garden, I've put a few small patches of crops in, like I'm starting back into growing, but not on the same scale as before. Um, I've been letting the goats into that area because like the, the soil's been enriched by bringing in ash and goat manure and other things. Um, the weeds are extra tasty and I've got a reason to try and like get that biomass down before I wade in there to like plant more crops. But in order to protect the crops that I've planted from the goats, all I've had to do is put a piece of electric tape around those areas without even turning it on. So they know that white line means, oh, so I probably don't it. need to go near that. If there's plenty of food over here, why would I bother taking the risk? And when I first let them out there, I made sure I was present to like shake the line so that they really noticed it yeah. and, you know, t poke them with the stick. 
So they've got a sense that, oh yeah, there's something going on there if I go close to it. And after doing that for a few days, I can actually let them out in that area and come back inside to work on other things. And so far they've been good. Um, there's a possibility that eventually one of them will get in and take a few bites out of the vegetables. When that <laughs> happens, that's all a... figure it out. <laughs> well, when that happens, it's a sign that it's time to move them somewhere else. Sure. So I've got my orchards where I'm going to start start moving them through there as well. But I'll need to be there in case they start to um to lay into a tree that I'd rather they left alone. Yeah. Um, the distant hill that's covered in bunyas. Um, I've demonstrated through the rotations that they're not that interested in bunya nuts and macadamias. Um, they're not the most palatable species. Um, if you leave them in a paddock for long enough, they will eventually damage them. But it, it, it's the dose is the poison. Like that's the idea. And if you get a sense of what the animals want and what their behavior is, you can make that decision to move them on. Like It's all about sensing what's happening in your environment, having a relationship with all of the parts and being able to respond once you get a sign that it's time to to make a change. Yeah, that's very well said. And it seems to be in line with the philosophy of a number of, I guess, pedagogies or, or ways of teaching to interact with agricultural systems that are essentially zero input, but it's not it's not zero work, <laughs> certainly as you yes. know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. for example, syntropic agriculture is one that I kind of draw parallels to where it's very heavy on observation, presence, management. And, uh, and and an understanding of the stage of development, growth, transformation that each plant is in, yeah. knowing when to intervene, when to prune, when to give the signals to others to start to grow. And it seems like that's, you know, you've both basically come to the exact same conclusions through your trials. Mm. I, I've even been thinking about this, like in the ancient, like the first agricultural so uh, societies often had a... Uh, like a, a religion or a priest class that would tell people like now's the time to plant and now's the yes. time to do this. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder if that was like such a specialized skill set in the early days of agriculture that it required, um, you know, a, a person who spent nothing, uh, they did nothing with their life other than thinking about observing everything that was happening in the world around them to, to yeah. make those critical decisions and, and guide everyone else in, in like increasing the chance of having a successful harvest. Yeah. When your entire population depends on that, it's it's worth having specialized people who really, really understand the context that you're working in. I wonder mm. if that'll be something that starts to come back. <laughs> you get, you know, one or two or, you know, maybe not a priest class, but a specialist class within villages or within regions that can give that kind of insight. Well, see, this is the thing. Um, I've been studying a bit more about how these pre-industrial agricultural societies worked. And and I, I've experienced this as well too. Like you can plant a crop and have an amazing harvest and you're like, okay, I've got it made. Like I know what to do now. And you can even do that for two or three years and then something changes. And then you get three or four years in a row where it just completely fails. And that might be permanent. Like I've had crops where our local wildlife has learnt to eat it. Like the, the first year they didn't know what it was. And once they figured it out, there's just no hope of growing it ever again. Um, but in these systems, the older people would have been alive long enough that they would have seen a really bad frost or a really bad flood or a plague of grasshoppers come through. And they'd have some idea about how uh, the, the proper way to respond to it because they've lived through it before. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I think these kind of projects are going to have to be multi-generational. 
Yeah. Um, I, I no longer feel the pressure to like solve all of the problems myself in five years because within five years in Australia, you've only seen half, well, less than half of what the climate can throw at you. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. But have you started to look to find maybe an apprentice or someone who can, you know, <laughs> at least catch up with where you are in the time you have to teach and then, you know, expand on it when they have, you know, the longer lifespan and more observation to go forward? I've made as many local contacts as I can, and there are people who are very interested in what's happening around here, but I'm in a really privileged position. So I, I managed to retire very early full time to this project in, in my mid forties, which is like over the hill if you're a peasant, but um, so that's given me the time to devote to all of this. And, you know, I, I don't have particularly expensive tastes and I've got a partner who's very supportive to keep the bills paid. Mm -hmm. And I've got all of this space, like this vast amount of space to play with, like who else would have the, the opportunity to plant, you know, hundreds of bunya nuts. Um, it, it, just wait to see what happens. Yeah. Well, typically they would be um, like baby boomers. They'd be in their sixties to have the wealth and the time to be able to do that, to like buy all of that land and just experiment with it but then they'd have no lifetime left to see the project through. Yeah. Um, they'd probably like get five or 10 years along. Uh, they get too old to manage it and they'd either die or have to like go to a nursing home. And then whoever buys the property would probably just get slashes in and go over the top of mm -hmm. all of the half grown trees. Or when the trees did mature, they'd have no idea about the importance of the genetics. So I'm, I'm in a really weird position. And most other people that I know are either younger people who are working and they've got families and they can do a little bit of gardening, sure. but nowhere they can't devote the amount of time that I do to it. Um, or they're very old and they don't have the physical strength to do much gardening. Sure. So, um, that so you're a bit of a unicorn. Me... <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a unicorn. And it makes me really conscious of how important it is to keep going. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that made me really pull back when I felt that burnout coming. Because like if I injure myself severely, like if I you know, ruin a hand or a foot and I can't get around the farm and, and do basic work anymore, yeah. it's basically game over for this whole game. Yeah. Uh, and likewise, if I burn out my motivation, which I think is more likely than a serious injury, um, <laughs> if I'm not careful about my psychology around the project, then that's the same issue. And likewise with my partner, like if I completely ignore and alienate them and the relationship blows up, that's also game over. So if I want to get to 70 years old with mature bunyas mixed in with piranha pines, creating all of these you know crazy hybrids, um, if I want to go through 20 generations of breeding canners uh, as a, a staple crop for the area and have them ready for when, you know, to pass on to people um, or to provide for people when they actually need them for food, um, I need to play a long game here. And I, I have to be, uh, what's the word, sensitive to my own limitations. Um, sure. So, for example, I had this, this, you know, amazing project in mind. It's like, okay, I'm going to spend a year um, only eating stuff that comes from my property and, like, grow all of my calories. And I realized I could probably do it. Like, I'm probably still fit enough to do it. But at the end of it, um, the cartilage in my back, the discs in my back would be worn down. Mm. Um, my knees would be a bit closer to like giving out on me. And the return of being like able to tick that box and say, yes, I did it, isn't worth the cost in the long run. So 
Um, instead, my goal is um, if I grow canners and spend like a week of labor growing it, can I produce a month's worth of calories? Um, that's the metric rather than, you know, devoting my entire year to just growing calories. That makes sense. And I really like these observations. Uh, I'm going through a similar kind of fork in the road in my life right now, something that I'm creating some content about, about, you know, what part of my career do I choose to to pursue? I have all these opportunities that maybe a couple of years ago are exactly where I wanted to be, right? But I also have other opportunities and circumstances to take into account that would be a matter of, you know, you can't do both of them at the same time. And what are these larger goals? What are you really trying to accomplish with your time? And also the people who depend on you, you know, yeah. I'm not yeah. making all these decisions by myself anymore. And uh, it's important to have a perspective about, you know, how your relationships are going to come out of all these trials and experimentations that you're trying. It doesn't just affect you. I think it's really important to keep in mind and it's essential to reaching at least a, a personal version of success when, when all of this is done. But now, okay, so let's dig into one of the ways that you helped yourself get through this potential burnout, because you picked up a really cool project. And this is kind of one of the main things I was hoping to discuss with you today. You started to write science fiction. And for, for those of <laughs> the people who are listening, they're like, well, this is, this is way, like, this is not what we're talking about. Explain to me the project, because it's a really unique twist on science fiction. Yes, so this is particularly relevant for the audience of these kind of shows that are interested in where society is going, how we're responding to the challenges that are ahead of us. So um, like a lot of people, I grew up being interested in science and that overflowing into, into being interested in science fiction. But as I became more aware of the challenges facing industrial society, the idea that we'd all be zooming around in like Star Trek futures with like you know, matter synthesizers and faster than light drives and as many planets as we want to colonize. It's like, I don't think that's going to happen anymore. So I, I kind of stopped consuming that kind of science fiction vision of the future because it just seemed either silly or depressing, <laughs> depending on how sure. you look at it. Sure. Um, and often when people develop that worldview, the next thing they look at is apocalyptic fiction. You're like Mad Max where they never seem to run out of petrol for like driving their giant cars around the um, the wasteland. <laughs> so also silly in its own way. Like apocalypses do happen, but they're usually over like before people realize what's happening. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, very dramatic and very flashy for like disaster movies. But again, like these days you can just turn on the news if you want that kind of content. So it got me thinking, it's like, what kind of future could be out there for humanity if all of this industrialization went away? And it made me realize that the only resource that we have that's truly re renewable is biology. Yeah. So I've imagined a distant future where a new civilization is emerging that's built on pure biotechnology. So um, I was inspired by the beginnings of agriculture, which all of those grand civilizations, you know, like the Egyptians and the Babylonians and all these like amazing changes that happened to humanity, they were built on biotechnology, like uh, some illiterate peasant farmers, probably women, brought together two or three different species of wild grains that hybridized, and then they developed them into wheat. And that's the foundation that you need to allow like, you know, giant monuments to be built and writing and metalworking and all these like transformations just waiting to happen in humanity came from that one chance event. 
from people who didn't know about cells or genes, yeah. um, but they still it's managed to create give, something new. We and give useful. credit to kings and pharaohs for doing that. It actually comes down to the people who hybridized the plants that made those population booms possible. Absolutely. So yeah, I've tried to gather together all of the little hints from modern um, research into biology about what could be possible to build a entirely new civilization um, 30,000 years in the future. So it's distant future Earth, but it's hard science fiction. Um, there's a little bit of like more fun things in there, but yeah, it's all it's all pretty grounded in things that are quite plausible. So in some ways it reads a bit like a fantasy. Like there's no robots, there's no rocket ships, there's no AI. Um, there's I think there's barely even it. There's one gun in it at some point because um, there's some populations that have remnant technology that they've managed to hang on to. Okay. Um, just as a as a contrast to the new people that are emerging, um, but yeah, it, it it's it's a lot of fun. I, I had an enormous amount of fun writing it. Uh, it took a few tries to get it right, but that's all part of the process. And it's um, a bit unusual in its structure. It's a series of four novellas, so each installment is from a different point of view. But there's a single character that kind of weaves their way through all of those installments, and you get to see their entire life through the eyes of other people. Um, and each one about two hours reading time. I, 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 I like reading novels, but I think they're too long generally, like the time commitment to say, I'm going to read a novel, like it's like five to 10 hours of sitting down and reading. Um, and particularly for science fiction, if it's focused on ideas, like if you haven't got the idea across in two hours of reading, then you're probably just playing with the reader's emotions, mm. um, beyond that point. All right, so um, set a set a give me a setting here. Um, oh, okay. Um, so the the story, the, the story is predominantly yeah, yeah, it's predominantly set in Australia and New Zealand amongst the people who are uh, the biotechnological uh, civilization that's emerging. Um, and so people might be allergic to the idea of eugenics based on, you know, recent history of how those ideas were applied. Based on the history of eugenics, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's the it, it's a difficult... See, often we're really limited by words. Like, eugenics is the closest term we have to the idea, um, but it has uh, accumulated, associated meanings based, uh, de you know, dependent sure, on recent history. Because of history. the racism and classism that was embedded in the execution. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's funny. Uh, the flaw that I saw in that version of historic eugenics was centralization. So decisions were made in a centralized way that were then enforced on populations involuntarily. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where the the evil that that's the core of the evil, sure. both because of the involuntary nature of it, but also because those decisions that were being made were based on incomplete knowledge yeah. and my basic idea is that biology is irreducibly complex and we can study genomes on supercomputers as much as we like we're never going to get to the point where we say this gene is good and we must put it everywhere because right. uh, it's not that simple yeah. and it, it, it's really funny if the nazis had actually implemented their um ill-conceived human improvement projects in the long term, they would have ended up creating genetic problems down the road 
Um, yeah. Well, much like you were talking about with these over hybridized uh, sweet potatoes, right? Where you just kind of yeah. clone and and narrow the gene pool to a point where it hits a dead end and cannot sustain. Yes, a, a similar thing is happening in livestock breeding these days. So there's a small number of like elite um, bulls and stallions that because we now have AI, that that one animal can produce you know thousands of different offspring. Um, we're ending up with these inbreeding problems where these perfect animals had flaws hidden inside them that only when they fold back on themselves genetically that you end up with problems emerging that you didn't realize were there. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, in this setting, um, the key change is that um, uh, humans have transformed to lose their instinctive fear of their own death. So okay. now this was inspired by... Um, the emergence of modern humans. So about 80,000 years ago, something happened to a group of humans that seems to have lowered their reactive aggression. So normally, um, like Neanderthals lived in relatively small bands. And the theory is that when they encountered other bands of Neanderthals, they usually acted aggressively towards each other. So that kept them relatively isolated from each other and limited their ability to cooperate. Modern humans seem to have broken through that um, reflex, which allowed neighboring tribes to regularly interact with each other in productive ways, to cooperate, which allowed them to exchange information and culture, um, to swap mates, which kept them genetically mixing up more. And they also um, exchanged materials. So like obsidian would be mined in one location and then it would turn up thousands of kilometers away handed from tribe to tribe to tribe, um, interacting with each other and cooperating. So that created something like a super organism of modern humans that rapidly colonized the entire surface of the planet. So my idea in this hypothetical future is that a new kind of humans emerge that take it to the next step. So the population is divided into these small, um, relatively closely related familial groups that I call cells that do relatively little... Um, material trade with their neighbors, but they do an intensive amount of cultural trade. Um, they have uh, a physical, uh, remember the old uh, two cans on a string uh, yeah. telephone that kids would play with? So they've got a perfected version of that that allows these cells to talk to each other regularly and exchange information and maintain culturally cohesive. So just like a superorganism, the cells within this um, society regularly cycle so they are uh, an empty space is founded by new individuals coming in um, that are selected by their neighbors based on their um, the history of those individuals and their their um, how well their specializations fit into the local environment mm -hmm. and then after a certain number of generations that cell reaches the end of its life and they all have a voluntary euthanasia like it an apoptosis on a, a small scale cultural level. So to us, Good that sounds instinctively done. horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, to us, that sounds instinctively horrifying because we're like, oh my God, like you, you never want to die. Death is the thing that you avoid at all costs. Sure. But that's an well, old survival instinct. Yeah, that's an old survival instinct in humanity, which it's often very useful. Um, if you're living out in, in like a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, um, wanting to die is probably not a great thing for the survival of your your tribe. Mm -hmm. um, though it's funny, if you look back in pre-industrial human cultures, 
the attitude to death is actually really, really different. So in peasant societies, infanticide is extremely common. Um, when a baby comes along and you're in the middle of a famine and you have to decide whether your older children or your baby eats, the, the, it's it's a common thing in cultures to have systems for making those decisions. Yeah. Um, and likewise, the elders during famines would often refuse to eat so that the younger people could eat and <laughs> that would hasten their own demise. Right. Um, it only seems to be an industrial civilization that we have this culture of being terrified of death because it's hidden from us. And preservation um, of the length of life at all costs, even at the all costs, quality yeah. of life. Yeah. Yes. So I've played around with all of these ideas in the fictional world to try and create something that's more like an integrated human superorganism. And those decisions happen on a, a local basis. So there is no central authority ordering people to live or die. Um, the the decisions happen on a scale where people are reacting to, you know, real demands around them rather than some abstract um, ideology or policy that's imposed from above. So yeah, it's it's a utopia, but at a price. And it's meant to. I love setting up gray, you know, morally gray situations where you know you're playing around with possibilities there. Yeah. So yeah, I'm 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 not advocating and saying everyone should go out and you know start living this way. I don't think we're capable of. I think we need to yeah. undergo a transformation much as modern humans did that uh forced them to um develop ways of cooperating which I think are partly cultural but also partly um biological. Well, so this is not only a really cool concept and I agree like playing with these moral ambiguities and asking these difficult questions, even if you don't have an answer for it, just to consider these is fascinating. But I'm also curious as to how you foresee a, a human race and a culture like this interacting with the landscape that it occupies. Uh, well, like I said, part of the issue is um, controlling a disease. Sure. So humans, for example, are really fixated on like the terror of war but if you look at the actual body count and like what actually shapes populations, diseases like orders of magnitude greater. Um, a really good example is um, during uh, World War One, you know, like the worst world, you know, the worst war that we'd ever seen in history, like just absolute disaster. More people died in the year after World War One ended of Spanish flu right. than all of the casualties during the four years of conflict. And we remember World War One. It's like Jaws, like we're afraid of the shark. Yeah. you know, biting our leg off, right. we're more likely to just drown. And like, you know, there's yeah. no big song and dance. Nobody really notices yeah. when somebody drowns because it's yeah. just, you know, not that scary. Um, so yeah, the, in this society, people are divided into these small groups, partly for the reason of preventing epidemic disease from spreading because mm -hmm. they live at relatively dense human populations. Mm -hmm. And when you throw a whole lot of people together in a big pile, um, it's just inevitable that some disease is going to rip through. Yeah. So, yeah, they've got this kind of paranoid um, segregation into these little isolated fa family units. Well, they're a bit bigger than families. They're kind of like small tribes. Gotcha. Um, so that's one interesting thing that they use to lay out the landscape. Um, to facilitate that, the landscape is uh, reshaped so that there's no surface water running across it. Yeah, so you, you no mentioned more... this in the group. I really want to dig into this because 
It's so interesting as, you know, I, I do a lot of work now with water, this concept mm. of not allowing any water to run off of a surface. All of it gets collected before it gets into rivers and streams. Yeah, yes. let, let's dig into this. So, yeah, um, they have underground caverns that they uh, that specialized groups of people move through different areas and dig underground into the bedrock as a way of storing water in an accessible uh, form. And when you get uh, rain events and those uh, start getting in danger of overflowing, they have specialized plants that have extremely high rates of transpiration. So there's no trees in this landscape, but there are plants that grow to about human height that have roots that are trained down into those reservoirs. So when you need to empty the reservoir to stop it overflowing, um, you bring out the plant species that are especially good at transpiration to evaporate it away before it runs across the surface. Yeah. Wow, what a cool concept. And then, yeah, this is what I was thinking, like, you know, it's it's the the microbes, the fungal spores, and sometimes ice and salt crystals that condense the atmospheric rain in the upper layers and cause it to come down. So without trees, you know, are you still envisioning you know these types of uh hydrological <laughs> there's still vegetation cycles. everywhere i, I yeah. don't think it needs to be tree height for that effect to work um the it way i look at it when, the higher canopy the, the way i look at it when you've got a region that's wet enough to support trees what's actually going on is an arms race between all of the plants so they're trying to like grow taller than each other to muscle each other out of the way get access and, to sunlight yeah, but it's not even quite that. The the taller plants are using light as a weapon to disadvantage the understory. And usually in those environments, they're actually fighting over access to minerals. So by retarding the growth rate of the understory, the trees are kind of monopolizing access to um, what's rate limiting. It's usually nitrogen or phosphorus. Or if you're on some weird soil, it's some trace element that's lacking. Mm. So the humans have basically waded into that fight between the plants and said, you're all wasting all of this energy growing as tall as possible. Let's just all calm down and get along. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll act as um, umpire so that we can all just kind of coexist and you can calm down and stop growing so tall. Oh, that's funny. That's super funny. <laughs> okay, so and what sort of narrative thread weaves this concept of a different world and different culture together? Is there a hero's journey that, that brings you along? Kind of. And I don't want to give too much away, but there are still small colonies of remnant Homo sapiens living among these people. Mm -hmm. And the story follows um, one of them um, through their journey as they um, move out into the wider world and start to understand the reality of their society. Because, um, yeah, they're because humans as we are today aren't designed to live in these little tiny insulated social bubbles um so they have a lot of mechanisms to help them deal with those psychological stresses kind of like putting a, a tiger in a small cage mm -hmm. and it's um not being psychologically compatible with those conditions so um yeah those modern humans have a, a particular world view um that isn't quite true so yeah this character gradually comes to learn that um, there's these other kind of people that are actually uh, in charge of their world and beyond Australia and New Zealand the rest of the world has very other uh, very different societies uh, that are still existing um, but yeah I might leave that for the book but yeah basically the this 
super human superorganism that's on Australia and New Zealand is preparing to spread out over the entire planet and to come into conflict with those other societies that are living in the Americas and mm. Eurasia. So that's kind of the um the the broader thrust of the series, the building up for that conflict. Man, so cool. And so I've been reading some other works that push for the exploration of different future narratives that break the mold of this kind of dystopic, we're all headed for doom and gloom future, which, you know, like you said, the news will already <laughs> spell that out for you. So you don't or, necessarily... Or Star Trek, which is suburbia in space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With a couple of conflicts with different life forms, which, you know, echoes of so many colonial narratives from the past already. Um, <laughs> but rather to envision something that is not only... Uh, not uncomplicatedly positive, right? Because mm. there's not a future scenario in which everything is utopic and everything just goes around fine. Because there's no like past reference to that either. In fact, mm. maybe that's not even something that we should aspire to, right? It doesn't promote evolution and uh, and growth when there's no challenge. But absolutely, yep. a different idea of a post, let's say, combustion reliant uh, engine for economic and 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 stabilization of health to one that is based on a deeper understanding of biology and a co-collaborative process with organisms beyond ourselves with less of a single species selfish outcome uh focus right and mm -hmm. you know maybe that's, that's a weird way of putting it i'm sure you'd describe it a little differently but there are mm -hmm. so few of those narratives at the moment and i am constantly looking for inspiration for what something like that could look like even from you know a creative and a fiction point of view. And I'm so glad that you've kind of taken up the gauntlet to, to envision something like this. And I can't wait to start to read these books when they come out. Well, that's ultimately what inspired me to write this, because the idea had been rattling around in my head for years of like, what would a like a purely biological sci-fi future look like? And I, I searched everywhere and I thought someone must have done this. And maybe there is like a story back in like the 1950s golden age of sci-fi that mm. You know, there'd be some nerd out there who could point me towards, but the closest I got was um, Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake, which is kind of like the the middle of the apocalypse of the end of industrialization, um, which, you know, it's a bit more accessible for people. I think it's easier to imagine that, you know, just a few decades in the future. Mm. Um, whereas this is like, well, what would happen tens of thousands of years after that? What are the mm -hmm. consequences of industrialization falling apart. Such a cool concept. And so when are these going to start to come out? Are they all going to be released at once or is it going to go in stages? Um, yeah, um, uh, they start coming out the 1st of April. So April Fool's Day. It's mm -hmm. not a joke. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they'll be two weeks apart, which I think should be a good balance that people have time to like get through one installment and then move on to the next. Because yeah, each one is uh, from a distinct point of view. So you learn something more about how the world is put together. Very cool. And what's the title of the first one? Um, so the whole series is called Our Vitreous Womb. Mm -hmm. And the first book is Her Unbound Halix. Okay. <laughs> Wait, hang on. Before we wrap that up, you got to tell me what's behind these titles. because I'll give it away. I'll give it away. So Our Vitreous Womb is a reference to the heart of Australia so with a warmer climate and sea level rise, we'll actually end up with an inland sea 
in the middle of Australia. So in that sea, these people have developed a uh, algae-dependent floating um, culture of salt-adapted humans who are preparing to spill out and colonize the oceans of the world and restore the mineral cycles in the ocean that have been broken for about 2 billion years. Wow. So most of the ocean is a desert in terms of um, biological capacity. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because all of the phosphorus and iron sinks to the bottom of the sea and never comes up again. So plant life can't grow on the surface of the ocean because it doesn't have some basic ingredients. So the idea is a human coordinated system, uh, ecosystem, could actually cover the entire surface of the ocean with a kind of plant life, provided we have an animal uh, symbiont that can bring minerals back up from the ocean floor. Oh, so cool. So yeah, the, the, the womb is... I away whole... with ideas here. I can't wait to yeah. see where this goes. Yeah, the whole continent is a womb. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a planetary scale organism that's about to give birth. Wow. Um, and our, uh, her unbound hallux. Um, so each of the point of view characters has a characteristic body part. And one of the strangest things about humans are our feet. Like it's not our brains, it's not our hands, it's not our voices. Our feet are absolutely unlike any other creature. And it was probably the part of us that evolved first. It allows us to walk. Um, like we use about half as much energy as a four-legged animal. And that allows us to travel vast distances on less food. Um, couple that with a really big brain, we can remember where to turn up in a really wide range for when seasonal resources become available. So I'm, I'm, it's not a foot fetish, I promise. Um, it's a, it's a biological interest in what makes us really different from other creatures. Um, so yeah, this particular character, her feet get her in trouble because she's so adventurous. Okay. Um, and Halix, I should say, is the big toe. It's the proper name for the big toe. And I didn't actually know that. Like a science nerd like me had to look it up. <laughs> and the thought is that when you learn that curious little fact, oh, yeah, Halix is the proper word for big toe. If you know someone else who's a kind of biology or science nerd, you can say, do you know what a Halix is? And then when they don't know, you can tell them and you can say, it's because of this amazing book. Maybe you should read it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's a very niche way of advertising <laughs> I, I like that strategy well i'm i'm aiming it at biology nerds yeah yeah you got to know your your audience perfect well i hope they get a chance to listen to this and to read your book as soon as it comes out and uh well if people are interested in the first book they can go to my author website um www.haldanebdoyle.com if you sign up to my email list, you can get a free review copy of my first novella. So you can see if you like it with um, without having to buy. Nice. And if you've got more questions or want to discuss the stories with him too, uh, you're pretty active on the Discord group. I've really loved having discussions there and seeing the advice and the, the comments that come out from other people sharing their stories and the projects that they're working on. You've, you've done a lot to contribute there as well. Discord's amazing. It's so great you set it up. <laughs> All right. Well, let's leave it there. And I'm sure we'll do some follow-ups too, especially as I get a chance to read these volumes as they come out. But uh, yeah, thanks so much for taking on the, the responsibility of exploring a different narrative for a human future. And I'll look forward to catching up again soon. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks once again to Shane. I've included all of the links that we mentioned in the show notes for this episode so you can check out the book yourself. 
Now Shane is also quite active on our Discord server, so I would invite you to join there if you have questions and ideas that you'd like to explore with him. Now before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.